One of the first visuals that come to mind when I think about uh, my role as a community member, um, I think about riding the bus. I'm Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, contact us and we might have you on the show. Today I spoke to Natasha Dupuis about the health effects from living in a socially and economically segregated city. Tell me what you do. Introduce yourself so people can learn a little bit about you. I am Natasha Dupuis, a native Washingtonian born and raised in the southeast section of our city. I currently work at the George Washington University, my alma mater, and I support students with disability supports as they pursue undergraduate and graduate careers. In addition to that, I am a newly elected official in the district. I'm the advisory neighborhood commissioner for 7E04. So for those listening, um, DC has direct representatives, if you think like a state legislator or a state representative. It is similar (laughs) in terms of geographical layout. We have about 2,000 residents that uh, we're responsible for as an ANC, and my section is in the Marshall Heights neighborhood. So you've been an activist in the community for a while, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I created this podcast because I think a lot of policy decisions and A lot of uh, money is being spent to make people healthier, but not necessarily in ways that are most needed, in ways that benefit people in the way they need help. So I thought you might be a great person to talk to about that, given all the work you do in in the community and the conversations you have uh, with people, particularly people living uh, in poverty and in underserved conditions. One of the first visuals that come to mind when I think about uh, my role as a community member, um, I think about riding the bus and how in DC, um, I would travel from Southeast and Anacostia to Foggy Bottom for high school and then part of college. Um, And the same folks would ride the route around the same time every day to and from, but I felt like I traveled from Um, abject poverty to opulence, right? This full spectrum of what could be possible in our country, but then also in our city um, every day. And then now in elected leadership, I attend meetings. And yesterday I attended a meeting where it was overwhelmingly um, representative of transplants in the district. Oh, was it a meeting for the entire city or for? The meeting was a ad hoc community driven uh, conversation about some legislation that could impact Ward 7. And the community members hosting the meeting asked everyone to state their name, their neighborhood, and their time in DC. Again, (laughs) this introduction was a little different from some public meetings because usually there's an agenda, you hop into the agenda and those steering the conversation get to 
name their stake in the community. However, I do not believe that that conversation yesterday where the overwhelming majority of folks present represented transplants. I don't think that that is um, an anomaly. I also recognize that there is there are levels to um, transplant experience, right? Um, in terms of, did I marry into the community? <laughs> I think that brings certain weight. How long have I been here and what type of work I've been up to? Um, but again, it just takes me back to that imagery of being on the bus and thinking about who gets on and off at certain stops. And I think based upon what you're able to see on your ride, that impacts your view of that bus, lap, bus line, right? If I take bus line X, we're not actually talking about the X bus, but if I'm taking about the X bus and I only see um, areas with high density of retail and uh, scaled posh living, I think this is the best route. But if I also take that same X route and I'm passing through um, food deserts, I don't have proximity to a health clinic. Um, there are no public restrooms or areas to get water. Those things might be very present and salient to me in my experience um, and how I might show up at those meetings if I knew about them. So what happened at the meeting? The meeting, I think, bared some truths around um, first neighbors saying that the only reason that they found out about the conversations was through an app called Nextdoor. <laughs> um, and there was no decision that was made at the meeting. I'll say that at first to answer the question directly. I think the understanding that was, that was processed was that many folks who are native or overwhelmingly representative of the plight that is in War 7, those residents are not anti-development. Those residents are not anti-expansion um, of amenities, right? However, some folks who might be transplants are seeking amenities when there are some basic services that haven't been met. Um, and some folks believe that there's a both-and approach, like, oh yeah, we can get grocery stores, we can get many clinics, and um, we can also have art and entertainment venues and a streetcar and um, more bike stations and bike lanes. And the folks who are advocating for more of the amenities Again, it might not be amenities first, but those folks aren't necessarily representative of the individuals who also have those more immediate needs and day-to-day -day needs. You've been living in you've been living in a, a community with people who live in poverty, who rely on public assistance for a long time. And given your work in the community, I'm very interested to hear, first of all, just your general reactions to the health-related services that are available to people? Are they adequate, inadequate? If so, why? If not, why not? My neighborhood is a food and health shortage area. Folks who have the greatest need in terms of comorbidities or multiple diseases, or if they go to the doctor and they have to come out with multiple pills or prescriptions and need specialists, um, those folks are present in our community. Um, they are aware, I believe overwhelmingly aware, of, like this is what I received from the doctor. However, I think in terms of compliance and the sustaining of a plan, those things tend to be in conflict with some other uh, demands that come in their lives. 
So one, exercise for all, right, would be, would yield health benefits. However, when we're in a community where this week um, we've had three shootings um, within walking distance of each other in my neighborhood, one of them was fatal. If I am excited, which I personally am, about exercising and I know the benefits, I also have the stark reality of unpredictable violence occurring in my community in a concentrated, frequent, unpredictable manner. Um, so encouraging exercise is also a concern there because of the violence, but then also the proximity to leisure, I believe also has proximity to a level of wealth or ability to have time to, to take time to dedicate for relaxation and peace or to manage something new to your routine. So about the exercise, do you think people don't exercise because they don't feel safe outside? And, and if so, how, how much is that contributing to the lack of exercise? Yes, I think that there's part, some folks don't exercise because they don't feel safe. Um, however, I will observe there are folks who walk in pairs. They walk during the daylight. I know in the summertime when I walk, um, there are some seniors who sit on, there's like neighborhood watch, they sit on their porch. So I was like, I know I'm going to see this person or their dog as I'm walking. I think another part is access to adequate recreational space um, that's not locked up, right? There are some parks that are locked up because it's affiliated with the school um, or if there are open air like strips of grass, right? If I think about down East Capitol Street, there's a median that has green space. I feel like if it was in another area of town, there might be seating there, right? To pause for your siesta if you were walking. There might be arrangements for checkers or some type of like recreational activity in that green space. And I think a lot of our green space, even like Fort DuPont Park, huge, right? It hasn't been reimagined in a more practical, um, continued use for the residents that are here. It's a beautiful park too, and it's discouraging to me that I I almost never see people in the park. Right, except for like a cookout during the summertime. But I agree. And, and do you think that's related to safety issues? I think Fort Dupont. That's where I grew up. That park is where I played. I had ice skating lessons the grow garden, like every aspect of that park, the free concerts in the summer on Saturdays. I think what I'm seeing, there's a group called We Fit DC. They're like exercise teams that assemble and make even parking lots accessible for fitness. Um, what I've observed, and I've seen this in other places, especially in China, like every evening there's a group that just assembles in like a community area and you work out. That's what you do. Someone leads a corporate dance or activity and that's the way that you engage. And I don't see that level of consistent physical fitness happening in our community. Um, and I feel like the folks who live here are very interpersonal, community-based. Like, if this group is doing it, I'll show up. It is very present with the youth, right? If you, pre-COVID, there would be lots of football leagues, baseball, all the different activities. And the youth would congregate. Their parents might also show up to support, supervise, um, but there wasn't the same emphasis on like, you need to be moving too, right? So what do we need to do to make the community healthier or to make it easier for people to, to be healthy in the community? 
One, I'll say, I think that there are some tried and true remedies that we need to assess to see, like, are they happening and are they happening in the areas of great need? A specific example, there are strip malls in our community. We're not going to assess the products that are available in these places, but the fact that there is some commerce happening, how do we use those commerce, like, areas of commerce to infuse public health, if it's through health literacy, um, awareness. Um, one of the things that I thought about was condom distribution. I remember when free condoms were available in candy bowls all over, I don't know if you've ever seen these before, or in dispensaries. Um, that could easily be up on a wall at a store. While you're waiting for your carryout, grab a couple condoms. There are folks who will replenish them from the city government and they have them available Let's do it, right? Um, do we need to facilitate that engagement? Narcan, life-saving drug, um, easily administered. I think if you can have an AED in a building, you should also have Narcan. How many of the businesses in our area are in proximity to a place where a resident has overdosed? In my neighborhood, that is a real um, scenario for which it could have been prevented. Um, so I think those are two examples where I say, okay, Use the existing structures that exist, or excuse me, those are real examples where you can use existing structures and make it public health, if you will, bring a resource to community members. I also observe that um, in my community, or if we think about folks and not in terms of silos, in terms of there's a second grader, but this second grader is a um, observer of violence, right? Um, what did that violence look like? Has it been classified? That's something that I was learning about recently with, um, you know about the ICD-10, right? If you have this international classification of diseases, do we appropriately classify what has been witnessed, what has been experienced, especially if there are police involved activities, is there someone documenting for this second grader um, who has witnessed this level of abuse they hadn't experienced it physically, but they witnessed it. How does that show up in their um, psyche, right? Are they present for school? That second grader, who is their caregiver, right? So I think about in us documenting, right? There's one thing to document um, the outcomes that are in our community. And I think our city is documenting a lot of outcomes. Are we seeing how those outcomes show up just like we would a comorbidity? So you have existence of multiple diseases, but you also have existence of multiple experiences. And it's not just poverty as a blanket, but you have a parent who is formerly incarcerated. They might be home, they might be present, they might be bringing you to school. Do they have an ID? Are they employed? Do they have food? Do they have um, multiple levels of intervention? And what I've been doing is working with some of the neighborhood elementary schools to say, okay, when a student comes to pick up their computer, we should also, it will behoove us to give them a document with resources in the community. Why are we doing that? It's not that we can't, it's more of, well, this is what I signed up to do. We've had experience with success of getting out this one thing, we're gonna be responsible or known for that one thing. If it's technology access, we're gonna close the digital divide. However, we know that just because you give someone the device doesn't mean they know how to use it. So like even doing like, here's the tutorial, come into this room in a socially distant manner, just like they do at museums, on a loop, we're gonna have these 15 minute you know, preview videos. Um, 
I think that there are folks who have the desire, they have the capability, but more of it is their capacity, um, compounded capacity. If we have these nonprofits who are pursuing the same demographic, we have these clinicians who are working with the same demographic, can we align, and it could be once a week, one time at all throughout the year, when can we align these resources to show up? Um, another prime example that we partnered on, there was a trunk or treat activity aimed to like have, you know, invoke some encouragement and excitement with young people around Halloween, pass out candy, give smiles behind the mask. <laughs> but then we also offered flu shots. The flu shots were available and free. Um, and I think one of the things that I thought was very impactful for this community, primarily African-American, primarily um, having the present thought of anxiety or nervousness around receiving vaccines, there was also clinicians available and intentional around debunking myths and providing. Yeah, you were one of them, right? <laughs> um, that was huge. That was huge. And I think that those, are, because we have a service, it doesn't, um, we can't take for granted that there's like a personal touch that needs to be added to that, right? Um, I also think with projects, we can move at the speed of trust if folks are consistent, it doesn't have to be the same folks, but if there are consistent access points to resources or to um, programming. And I think that a lot of things, there's been a balance, right? You have to document impacts, right? For funders, if you're operating with a nonprofit, et cetera. But in my observation, I've seen organizations show up to do something for their report or for their benefit, and it hasn't been ongoing or at least set up a pathway for community members to then follow up. You had asked earlier about the adequate services. I think DC has um, the Medicaid program in terms of DC Health as well. There are lots of access points and information and services that are available to folks. I believe that it is time consuming <laughs> to process through how do you successfully navigate this system to allocate two hours of consistently calling to process one appointment reschedule or to get in contact with the provider at a federally qualified health center. So what do you think uh, we can do to build trust or to bridge trust between the community and the health system? Just one thing. I'm gonna name hiring. I think some of the biggest advocacy for um, engaging with health systems comes from its employees. That's a really great suggestion. I, I hope people hear this and actually heed that because it's actually something I hadn't thought about, employment as a way to bridge trust in the community. That was Natasha Dupi sharing her observations from living in a socially and economically segregated city. She also suggests if we want to improve health outcomes, we should work diligently to diversify the healthcare workforce. Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health Podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.